This morning, our scripture reading comes from Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 to 35. It reads from the ESV version as follows. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ir Abarim, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahab and Sapa and the valleys of the Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there, they continued to beer. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it. The well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness, they went on to Matanah. And from Matanah to Nahalil, and from Nahalil to Bemoth, and from Bemoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pixah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messages to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. 
but Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the as to as far as to the Ammonites for the border of the Ammonite, Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all the cities and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his son fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew him, Heshbon, as far as Dibon perished, and we laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spreads as far as Mediba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent a spy out, Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went by way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left. And they possessed his land. This is the word of the Lord. Praising the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And again, giving thanks to Pastor Gerald for allowing me to serve those for whom he and the elders will give an account before the Lord one day. And to all of you who are joining us via live stream, good morning. I am glad you have joined us today. We are grateful to have this means to gather in these very strange, but not really so strange times. We hope that these services are a blessing to every one of you. And yet, we each eagerly await that day when we all can gather in one another's presence again. Before we turn to the Word of God, let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather at a distance. We look forward to you bringing an end to this pandemic and our quarantine times. Be with all those who are working to bring an end to the virus and its spread. Bless those first respondents, those essential workers, those trying to help their businesses recover, and many 
who have lost loved ones to the coronavirus. Bless the loved ones and friends of our sister Vivian Kleinkoff. Thank you that she now beholds your face with joy, the hope that we all have in you. As God of justice, would you bring justice for the family of George Floyd and of the families of so many who have experienced the sharp sword of injustice, racial injustice. Make each one of us to love our neighbors like the Good Samaritan. Speak to us now for your glory in Oak Park and Chicagoland and around the world. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I make my way through my sixth decade of life, I have again come upon the dilemma we face time and again as we age and the people in our lives continue to age with us. How do I figure out what different and enjoyable thing to get my dad for another Father's Day for well over the 50th time? When I add that I also have been trying to make sure I have not duplicated the gifts for more than 50 Christmases also, you understand my first world Western dilemma. The same goes for figuring out mom and in-law gifts too. Now, my and your quandary about next Sunday really isn't about limitation of choices in Amazon warehouses and or COVID prevention precautions surrounding dad's favorite restaurant. Instead, our decision on how to celebrate has to do with the nature of our relationship to our fathers and the choices we make in that relationship with them. If your view of your father is that he was not there for you spatially or emotionally, your attempt to celebrate will be that much more difficult. And I'm sorry you have to experience this. But if you have perceived your father was faithful in his presence and was integral to who you are and your success in life, then you are going to stay on your quest to find the umpteenth meaningful thing with which you can celebrate your father if he is still alive. Maintaining meaningfulness in prescribed and preferred Christian forms of celebration also can be a challenge even as we weigh the frequency of our ordinances at Calvary Memorial, one perennial concern often expressed is that a weekly practice can devolve into an empty tradition of words, wafers, and wine, and of water washing over people who are unconverted or unconcerned about seeing the message of Christ reach the nations. Everyone's experience with feeling an overplayed song, style, instrument, or artist in Sunday services takes away from vibrant worship shares a sense of this concern. However, just like our understandings of our Father's roles in our lives completely influences the effort we put in making a great celebration of them, so too it is our recognition of God as the provider of every victory in our lives that fuels how meaningfully we celebrate him. This 
is what we see emphasized repeatedly as we approach the story of Israel's continued journey to the promised land in Numbers 21. The five scenes in this passage yield five things that strengthen our magnifying of our events that celebrate, yea, memorialize in celebration what God has done for us in this life of our sojourn toward his kingdom. First, magnifying our memorials requires discernment toward worldly rewards. As Israel attempts to move from Mount Hor toward the plains of Moab, the unnamed king of Arad decides that he does not want to let Israel through. He makes war against Israel and even captures some of their people as prisoners of war. But rather than negotiate terms of peace with this nation so that they might be kind to Israel and prosper them, Israel vows to destroy this king and his people completely. This is known as the harem principle in the Old Testament. From the term harem behind the words devote to destruction in our English text. Israel will destroy the people and take none of their goods or people as spoils of war. When Israel is following harem, they will not be tainted by anything these people or other nations in the promised land have to offer. Israel makes this vow, one, because God must be the one to defeat this foe who has already captured some of her people. And two, despite the fact that the harem instructions in the law are yet to come in Deuteronomy 7. In response to the prayers of God's people, the Lord does provide victory through Israel's war with the Canaanite nation, and Israel keeps her vow to destroy all. Then they named the place Hormah, a name that memorializes God's victory through Harem, even though they were previously defeated at this present location in Numbers 14. The Lord has taken them back to a place of previous defeat and provided victory as they seek his reward and then celebrate by naming the city after God's victory. One of the things that can deflate our remembering of God simply is accrediting victory in this present world to human effort. Had Israel done less than Harem, they would not have seen the defeat of Arad by the hand of God. Had they not done Harem, it is possible that they could have attributed any peace in the land to their negotiation efforts and a change of heart and mind by the king of Arad. Either way, Hermah would not have existed as a name in that region. Yet because Israel recognizes this victory as from God alone, God's victory is memorialized in the name of the city, and the name remains there celebrating the victory both 20 plus years later after the death of Joshua in Judges 1, and more than 300 years later during the reign of David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. 
For all of those years, every time the name of that city was said, there was a sign pointing back to the victory God alone provided for his people over the king of Arad. Second, magnifying our memorials requires repentance from grumbling. The Lord takes Israel by the circuitous route toward Moab, and it takes a little more time than the direct route. En route, they speak against God and Moses for a present and temporary lack of water and food other than manna. It's not that they don't have food. They just did not have the food they desired they had a very sufficient and good-tasting supply of manna, and none of it was leftovers. Although they directed their words toward Moses, the Scripture reveals that their ought was with God. God is the one who brought them out of Egypt to be his own, who provided the victory over Arad for them to continue to Moab. And God is the one giving the manna in the desert. To be sure... They do speak against Moses and direct their words at him. But Scripture consistently recognizes that their angst is toward the Lord, the one who must provide for them. In response to their grumbling, the Lord sends fiery serpents. Fiery probably in the sense of the strength of the poisonous bite. Israel could not celebrate in this scene because of their sin. In fact, the sin reveals that they had stopped focusing on the victory of God at Hormah and had turned to thoughts that led them to speak against the God who had given them the victory. Although there is no memorial celebration in this scene, the repentance here leads to the victories and the songs that are to follow in the passage. Note that the repentance includes one, acknowledgement of their sin in the vertical direction toward God. Two, acknowledgement of their sin toward Moses against whom they spoke and made complaints about the lack of provision in the wilderness. And three, dependence upon Moses to intercede as a righteous mediator between them and the Lord. When Moses intercedes for the people, God's solution to the serpent bites and resulting death is to find healing by the means that he himself provides. Look upon the brazen serpent, even while other serpents continue to bite. For Moses, apparently the bronze material present was the most resourceful thing available for making a representation of the fiery serpents. Correspondingly, as we look forward to the new creation, Christ is God's means of provision of eternal life, of the healing of the whole world from the perishing bite of our choices towards sin. John 3, 13 through 17 says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The bronze serpent passage in the fourth gospel focuses on the exclusivity of the son as the object of salvation. No one except the son in 313 and only son in 316 and it is later repeated in 318. As the bronze serpent on the pole was the exclusive means of life for those bitten, so the Son of God is the exclusive means of eternal life for those who would be saved. God sees people perishing under his judgment of our sins, and God provides a means of rescue from our moral disobedience, decadence, disregard, and dismissal of him. If you are listening to this sermon as one who is a skeptic or outright denier of the exclusive claim that Christ is God the Son and the only means of salvation unto God and away from his wrath upon sin, Numbers 21 holds out to you a hopeful offer to acknowledge that you have sinned against God simply by complaining about your life and its provisions. And that your only hope is to look upon the one he had lifted up upon the cross to die for your sin and to rise from the dead, to provide life from the dead for all who believe upon him. Christ is God's provision to rescue us from judgment. Trust in Christ alone today. If you are listening to this message as a believer, Numbers 21 invites you to confess your grumbling against God about all numbers of things about which you have become impatient in your journey to the land in which he has promised to dwell in your midst. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 13 reviews this very passage of Numbers 21, telling us that this narrative was written so that we might not grumble against God. It tells us not to stand too assuredly in our salvation if we are grumbling. And it also tells us that the Lord makes a way of escape from grumbling. If anyone should not be grumbling against simple inconveniences during the reopening phases of the pandemic. It should be us because we know that this journey is under the providential rule of God. Such grumbling displeases him, not looking back at all at all of the victories that he already has provided for us. Three. Or third, magnifying our memorials requires singing of victories. In this section, there is only travel and song. The geographical location of most of the places in this chapter have been lost in history. Yet that is helpful in the reading of the passage, for the focus is on the singing of the two songs that reflect on the Lord's victories as they travel through all of these territories. The first set of poetic verses, memorialized in the lost now but extant then, book of the wars of the Lord, and probably also sung, 
remembers with words of unknown meaning, Waheb and Sufa, the Lord bringing Israel to the Arnon region, the region of the Amorites, even closer to the land of Moab, just opposite the promised land. Anyone reading these well-known verses would say, Ah, yes, the Lord did see us through the desert and get us to the border of Moab, didn't he? Won't he do it? And maybe they even threw in a socially distancing elbow bump while saying it. Won't he do it? The second of these verses, which the writer explicitly identifies as a song sung by Israel, celebrates the Lord bringing their thirsty complaining of no water selves to a well that had enough water to quench the thirst of all two million or more of them traveling across the desert. The song reveals that the Lord worked in the hearts of the leaders of Israel to dig willingly for the people. They remember this victory in song, and the song goes with them from there all the way to the top of Mount Pigza, memorializing and celebrating God's provision of water. One of the great things about the God we proclaim as Christians is that he is a happy God who loves to celebrate and to see and hear us celebrate. Surprising to some, that may not be the first picture we imagine when we think of God. Images in history that emphasize acts of fire and brimstone, supposed puritanical prudishness towards sex and everything else, and the last judgment as forever painted on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, are just a few of the things that make us think of God as wrathful far more than we think of him as joyful. Add in a few legalistic churches in your experience and maybe a family in your life that was legalistic, and the thought of God wanting us to celebrate goes into a box marked occasionally, but don't overdo it. Yet in this world, we very much like to celebrate because it shows that there have been successes in a very difficult and trying life. So it is both possible and worth it to keep going in the celebrated endeavor. Marriage anniversaries tell us that although statistical and family odds were against us, we have and can make it through another year of challenges. Every fifth year, recognition on a job speaks of an apparent value to the company and of the goodness of the work itself. Then there are celebrations of home purchases, graduations, birthdays, friendships that have endured, reunions, and church and pastor milestones that all say, yes, we made it over. As believers, God has given us song as a means of remembering his work as part of the righteous life we are to live before him. That singing will continue through all of eternity as we hail the King of kings and Lord of lords with shouts of hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. But song is not just a means of appropriating and stamping facts and truth. 
Song brings emotional and poetical aspects into the sanctifying process. Singing to God remembers what he has done for us and memorializes it into our affections before him. We should love to sing to our great God. Fourth, magnifying our memorials requires living with gospel rejection. Apparently, King Sion had not read the report of what happened when Arad mustered troops against Israel and her God. So Sion of the Amorites rejects the peaceful offer of the envoys from Israel and makes a choice for war. Of course, we now expect a repeat of the defeat experienced by Arad, which is exactly what happens to Sion because he is taking on the Lord by taking on God's people and rejecting their offer of peace. The victory again results in a ballad in which the defeating of Arnon, Moab, and Sion all are remembered. Here is a new tune to add to their devices to sing with the Waheb and Well songs as they move closer to the land of promise. This song is a warning promise to the people of Moab and their false god, Timos, that Israel will devour them like fire just as they have done the other nations because the true God is with them. The song celebrates the memory of Sion's rejection of peace. The peaceful gospel proclamation and living of believers equally can receive the hatred that comes from the offense of the gospel. Note again that this scene is about God's people making a peaceful offer to an idolatrous king and his people. The offer is rejected and the king and his people make war against the people of God. That pattern of hostility is not new for us. It is the raging of the nations against the Lord and against his Christ. The same rage that the world directs toward our message of exclusivity and countercultural morality. Yet if we are going to celebrate what the Lord is doing, it includes celebrating even when others are being hostile toward us as we serve him knowing that he has promised victories over our enemies just as he gave Sion and Moab their due. Celebrating does not mean seeing all victories in the forms we would like in this world, for the message of peace we offer will be rejected by many. Yet every rejection looks back at Sion and remembers that God will be victor, avenger, and vindicator. Fifth, magnifying our memorials requires following the voice of God. Again, Og, like Sion, decides to take on the people of God. Moab is a formidable foe. Yet for this encounter, God gives a word of promise. Do not fear, I have given him into your hand. You should do to him as you did to Sion. Enough said. 
Now all Moses and Israel have to do is trust that word of promise and go to battle. Moab could have 20 million soldiers. It does not matter. The word of the Lord has gone forth. Victory is assured. This scene is both encouraging and discouraging to me when I think of the Great Commission and my own life. The words of the Great Commission end with, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Yet I know my life does not always show that I trust these words in my dealings with the world. But God is not a liar and has showed himself victorious in every area of my life. So if I want to celebrate the Lord even more, I need to trust all things that he has promised in his word and watch him be faithful to fulfill his word before my very eyes. Finally, one last word of application. Reading this passage reminded me that I should bring thoughts of God with me to worship service and stop waiting on the worship leader and the worship teams to stir up worship in me. That is not their job. They select music and guide worship in order to help us think one thought toward the message as the songs of worship and the prayers did today, and to do so in unison so that we are not a cacophony of chaos like worship in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14. When we come to gathered worship, we already should be excited